little break in Ephesians uh, in the school holidays with Joe. Uh, by the halfway through next year, I hope Joe has a complete 12-week series on Ephesians, two weeks at a time in each chapter over school holidays, something like that anyway. Uh, we're coming back to our series in 1 Timothy. And I said in my last introduction in 1 Timothy that it was the one on gender in church and it might be the shortest ever, but I was wrong. Because after my announcement last week that I've been nominated as a candidate for election as the next Bishop of Armidale, you might be wondering, gosh, is he suitable? And you should be wondering, well, if he goes, what should we be looking for in a new senior minister? So we face the question of what's needed in Christian leadership. And it's all the more important in a day where church leadership is known to have failed. False teaching, sexual abuse, greed and bullying, and sometimes plain inefficiency and incompetence. Fortunately, God doesn't leave us in the dark but gives some clear guidance and nowhere more so than 1 Timothy chapter 3, a passage to put at the forefront of our minds whenever we think of Christian leadership. But before we get to the who of Christian leadership, what about the what? What does 1 Timothy 3 say about church leadership structures? Well, this passage actually fails as an HR manual because it doesn't give tight job descriptions. Uh, The New Testament actually avoids rigid details on structures. But if you read the direct commands on leadership in the letters, alongside snippets in the book of Acts from various early church examples, I think we get some fairly consistent insights into those church leadership patterns. And in brief, we discover that there are usually two basic types of Christian leadership. Overseers and deacons. The overseers are mentioned here first in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And the next six verses look at the sort of qualities needed in overseers. But before the details, notice the basic job description. The word overseer itself means what it sounds like, over Sight. It's where we get our word bishop from, but it's a mistake to read our denominational ideas of roving regional figureheads, wearing purple. Of course, Titus and Timothy and Paul were regional leaders, but the overseers here are local church leaders. We can tell that from verse 5. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family... How can he take care of God's church? Being an overseer is about managing the family or household of God, which verse 15 identifies as church. Overseer's job, manage it. You look ahead to chapter 5 and verse 17, that very same management word is translated by the phrase, direct the affairs. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. There's an important link because in chapter 5 we speak of elders, but in chapter 3 of overseers. Titus and Timothy, those letters, use the two words interchangeably. 
And what do the elders do? How do they exercise oversight? The answer is in the one clear quality required of the overseers in chapter 3, but not of the deacons. It's at the end of verse 2. End of chapter 3, verse 2, able to teach. The parallel list in Titus, chapter 1, verse 9, expands on this when it says that the elder overseer must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Oversight of the Christian church is exercised by teaching the word of God. Now, the other type of leadership are the deacons. We see them mentioned in verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, in Anglican circles and uh, some other denominations, a deacon is an assistant to the local minister in charge, but someone like Liam here, or sometimes if they're in a specialised ministry, a, a youth minister, a woman's minister. Whereas in Baptist circles, the deacons tend to be the volunteers who look after practical needs, the property, the finances, the rosters and so on, a bit like our parish councillors or sometimes admin staff. But what about deacons in the Bible? Well, it doesn't really say. The word is a general word. It means servant. A servant was a worker of some kind. So, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles chose seven men to deacon or serve at tables to ensure the needy widows did not miss out on a food distribution, which left the apostles free for their ministry of word and prayer. But some of those who deaconed at tables also went on to evangelise, like Philip, and so we cannot constrain or define the deacon ministry too narrowly. And what about the women? Can we have female deacons? This question arises from chapter 3, verse 11. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So literally, uh, the word just refers to the women or the wives. could be translated either way and the experts are divided over whether it refers to the wives of deacons or to females among the rank of the deacons. And I think it's slightly more likely to refer to deacon spouses than women deacons here, but it doesn't really matter too much since we know from Romans 16 and verse 1 that Phoebe is referred to as a deacon of the church and her service appears to involve being an envoy of some sort for Paul and also she was a patron or sponsor of local ministry. Basically, I think the deacon or servant title is probably a way of referring to any other official church workers, whether paid or voluntary, apart from the elders in charge, the overseers. And so this could include not only your parish councillors, but youth leaders, Sunday school teachers, congregational ministry team members, uh, ESL teachers, mini-mics coordinators, musician leaders. A deacon is a role with broad possibilities. And so here are two basic types of Christian leadership, church overseers who lead especially through teaching the word of God and deacons who serve in a whole range of other roles, which really gives us a fair bit of flexibility for local church structures. 
You know, more important though than structure, I think, are leadership qualities. What are we looking for here? Well, if you did pick up an outline on the way in, I've used some initials to keep you concentrating as I work through the list in 1 Timothy 3. And it may surprise you, but of the qualities listed here, 1 Timothy 3 really only mentions one or two that could be called capacity or capability or skill. The first is T for teaching. Able to teach, we saw it at the end of verse 2 and it's only required of the overseers, which is why I asterisked it on my outline to link it to the overseers above. There is, I think, a semi-parallel though for the deacons in verse 9. It's holding to the deep truths of the faith, really believing gospel doctrine and of course verse 6 warns us not to assume an overseer is converted to Christ either. You must check their convictions, not just what they kind of tick off on the box. I think the teaching ability here will include knowledge of the scriptures, how they fit together, but also some communication ability. Christian leadership, though, is not about setting your own vision for a church. It's about knowing the direction God's word is going and being able to communicate that to others. Not by a force of your personality, not by clever business skills or strategy, not by your personality, assertion of charisma or power, There'll be obviously levels of charisma, I guess, in leadership, but the basic capability for an elder is being able to teach. The second capability, I think, is management. This requirement comes in verse 4 for overseers. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Requirement is repeated in verse 12 for deacons. And incidentally, the management word is also used in chapter 5 and verse 14 of women in their homes, which shows that the capability on view here with management is not a gendered gift. Some of the attribute might flow from character but I think there is an element of competence, of capability, of being organised, for example, of being able to run an orderly household budget, uh, clear and disciplined in what you expect of household members and so on. I don't think it means your kids have to be non-stop angels, that would rule most of us all out. But if your kids are out of control consistently, it raises questions about your suitability to lead. And verse 5, as we heard before, gives the reason what holds true in the privacy of the home will also generally hold true at church. If you can't organise your family or discipline your kids, why would we be expecting it differently at church? But the fundamental thing we're looking for in Christian leadership is not skill or capability or charisma, but character. Character, godly Christian character. And it really comes out in the first quality listed in chapter 3 on verse 2, above reproach. That's a reputation word. Above reproach means not open to substantial criticism. I mean, we can always find something to niggle about. 
but not substantial criticism. It's paralleled in part by the first quality for deacons in verse 8 and for women in verse 11, worthy of respect, which is another reputation word. Now, of course, to be above reproach can't mean perfect. The Bible says, if we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. And Paul knew he was only ever a sinner forgiven by grace. At chapter 2, verse 7, we've kept coming back to it. That's why Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. He's our mediator, the only perfect go-between who died to set things right between us and God. But God's saving grace should change us and lead us to grow more like Christ. And so to be above reproach is to have no substantial or outstanding fault in your life and in many ways it's the summary heading that the other qualities listed fill out. So next on the list is SF and that stands for sexually faithful. Literally verse 2 and verse 12 speak of a one woman man. I don't think this means leaders can't be single because both Jesus and Paul were single and Paul commended singleness as actually allowing undivided devotion to ministry but it means you can't be polygamous or adulterous or dabbling in affairs. And an overseer, no divorce just because, you know, marriage, you found it hard and you decide someone else likes you better and you move on. So young clergyman, I wrote a letter of protest to our national Anglican figurehead about an archbishop in Perth who ordained a homosexual man the Anglican primate replied to me that he didn't bother to inquire into the private lives of his priests. I think that after the Royal Commission, a don't ask, don't tell approach no longer sounds so wise. And I'm glad that our own diocese investigates us deeply before ordaining us to try and weed out the immoral through the sexual sins of leaders, people have been hurt and the name of Christ dragged through the mud. Next on the list I've got SND, which stands for sober, not drunk. Verse 3 says, not given to drunkenness, and verse 8, not indulging in much wine. That's avoiding trouble for yourself, but also not leading others into temptation. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare reports that 25% of Aussies abuse alcohol on a monthly basis or more. And so we know this is an important issue. Christian leaders, if they drink, must err on the side of caution. But the positive alternative is to be sober. Now, obviously I mean in terms of the grog, but also sober in the broader sense of steady, which picks up the temperate word in verse 2, And verse 11, it's related to self-control. As Christian leaders, our lives will be sober and disciplined. H stands for hospitable. Interestingly, only mentioned explicitly of overseers in verse 2. Commended elsewhere to everyone, of course. But the overseers need to be hospitable gives a hint that maybe one of their jobs was to welcome visiting Christian missionaries or envoys into their homes as they move through the empire 
minding it's the leaders, they don't just get to sort of do the teaching and deciding the policy. No, they also get to roll up their sleeves and offer practical care. GNA stands for gentle, not aggro. It's from verse 3, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. If you've been with us in the series, you'll remember that the false teachers in Ephesus, where Timothy served, promoted controversies and quarrels about words. Responding to such falsehoods, or indeed to other serious pastoral problems, can get a minister hot under the collar. To be honest, it's hard actually just trying to get all the ordinary church members lined up and going in the same direction. So in the struggle to get things done the way we think they should be, it is tempting for Christian leaders to begin throwing their weight around. Dear friends, we must lead by persuasion, not coercion or manipulation. My denominational leadership experience has shown me that it's a minority but still too many ministers think leadership is all about authority. And sadly that can turn into cases of pastors or volunteer leaders even shouting at people or white-handing them or otherwise abusing or or bullying uh, leaders or, or members. Such a far cry from the Lord Jesus. He could say hard truths when needed. But as Jesus said, he would not break a bruised reed. Blessed are the peacemakers, he said. And so we need leaders who are willing to rise above disappointment without aggro, who can turn the other cheek. NG stands for not greedy. Comes out, verse 3, not a lover of money. Verse 8, prohibiting dishonest gain. Chapter 6 and verse 5 says some of the false teachers saw godliness as a means to gain, which points to the possibility that church leaders can enrich themselves. It's not just the televangelists. No misusing the ministry expense account. No ministers going out of their way to cultivate the generous sponsors or benefactors. Leaders must be totally transparent in handling money and should not be found grumbling about the lucrative careers they've given up for the ministry. NRC comes from verse 6. It means not a recent convert. Otherwise it says he might become conceited and fall under the same judgement as the devil. The Bible hints Satan was originally an angel who grew proud, wanted his own gig, rose up against God and was expelled from heaven. A new convert appointed too quickly to leadership can also get puffed up. This not a recent convert requirement is not applied to deacons here but verse 10 says teeth are tested. Deacons must be tested and only if there's nothing against them should they serve that way. So, of course, there is a time for getting to know potential deacons too, not just rushing to fill a vacancy with anyone who volunteers. And that's why we also have a safe ministry application and check process. And lastly, from verse 7, GR, it means a good reputation with outsiders. Now, I know that 
some non-Christians sometimes have warped ideas about or what we Christians should believe or what we should be doing with our time. And boy, they're hard on hypocrisy, so they'll jump on a Christian leader with a bad reputation. But overall, it is also fair to say that they'll often, even sometimes despite themselves, admire the ideals of Christian character, honesty, compassion, faithfulness. Now, there's a couple of other items I've had to skip on the list today, but the key insight is this. Christian conviction and character is critical. You know, as I said, hardly any of the qualities on this list are about your competency, your skills. Don't appoint people to leadership just because they're effective or gifted or popular or influential or clever or eloquent. The Bible says character is more important than charisma. Bill Hybels used to lead Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. It was just about America's biggest mega church when I graduated from theological college. So many Sydney Diocese pastors went to Chicago for their leadership summits that the Archbishop at the time, Wollongong's own Harry Goodhue, had to tell the Anglican ministers, please book on several separate flights because he was worried a generation of our ministers would be wiped out if the plane crashed. And Hybels did teach so well, grace not works, and that lost people mattered to God and so they should matter to the churches. And he had charisma in spades and wrote great books that were widely read. And one of his best, I reckon, was about character. It's title, Who You Are When No One's Looking. Character is what you're really like when you think you're in secret. Wouldn't it be good if our politicians remembered that in their great positions of power? And now, I'm throwing out the book. It was on my list to pulp because it turns out Hybels failed the test. A few years ago, just a couple back, he resigned and after initial denials from Willow's leadership, it was found that the allegations of sexual misconduct and abuse of power were credible. That can be forgiven through Jesus but it means you've foregone your status of being above reproach. And what is also perhaps even sadder is that the job description for his replacement at Willow Creek still majored on CEO skills, prominent in the advertisement, boldness, innovation, creativity, vision casting, strategy, communication and the ability to inspire high capacity gifts in other leaders for the vision. Character and godliness were mentioned but in a pretty minor key. Lessons learned? What of Armidale? What of Wollongong? At the compulsory professional standard training the staff are doing right now, the Commissioner for eSafety tells us to assume that everything you put online can become seen by others, even if it's in a encrypted chat or a closed private group. 
And I thought, good advice, Miss Berejiklian, good advice, Mr Andrews. And they said, it's good advice for you. Don't we serve the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful creator of all, God of the universe? Where can I go to hide from you? Psalm 139. Search me and try me. And so character is who you are when no one's looking. Now I guess the, um, the pendulum swing alternate reaction here then for Christians is we become cynical and suspicious of success and wary of people who, who put themselves forward as leaders. Well tonight we should not forget the trustworthy saying in chapter 3 and verse 1 that whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. It is a good thing if a Christian wants to lead. A good ambition. And our section ends in verse 13 by promising that those who serve well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. That's an incentive for servant leaders. But it's not enough that a person wants to lead. As my old boss said, character, it's the 90% of leadership. And that's why there's a checklist in 1 Timothy 3 in between to help us work out who's begun to display the character required of leaders. But let's all of us notice this, that so much on those lists are exactly how all Christians should really be living now. Think about it, not drunk. Content about money. Faithful in sexual matters. Hospitable and gentle. Maybe working on your character now is how you can be exercising leadership by your own example.